When I was a mere 21 years old, I was asked to preach a revival at a church. This is in the panhandle of Florida. And when I, when I arrived at the church, I realized that there, the church was split right down the center aisle. And those on this side were not speaking to those on this side. And the conflict was over, you ready for this? The church softball team. One of the leading guys in the church, one of the, the elders, he coached the team. And there was another elder whose son was on the team. And this elder would not let this, uh, son, this elder son play in an important game. Which begs the question in church softball, is there such a thing as an important game? Right down the middle. Apparently, after a game where the leader's son didn't play, there was an angry altercation, a melee, a meltdown. It, was, it came to a, a fracas. And there weren't fisticuffs, but there were very angry words that were exchanged. And the men withdrew into silence. And people in the church apparently chose sides. And there was a war of silence. They asked me to, to preach revival in this church. And I remember think, when I left that church, again, I was a novice, and I drove away, and I called. I, I, I did what young people should do all the time. I called my mentor and told him about it. And he said, don't ever preach in an angry church. It reminded me of the, what Jesus taught in Mark 4, told in a couple of Gospels. But Mark 4, Jesus uh, talks about how it's not just the teacher of the word, but it's the hearer. You play a part in every Sunday morning, every time you come and gather with the church. What, how is the soil of your heart? Is it thorny or rocky, or is it good soil? Are you ready to receive? And I could, I, I, all these years later, I look back on that event as one of the most pronounced, painful sermons that I ever preached. One of the most painful worship experiences that I ever preached. If you look up the word revival, it, it, it's got a stirring definition, a spiritual revival. It means that God moves, that things are restored, that things happen, that there's a motion and an awakening, and it just doesn't happen. God doesn't bless a bickering church. It's one of the things that I love about Acts and this series in Acts as we're looking at the church as described as a movement, not a place to attend, an event to sit through, but a movement, and movements move. And we see that they move together. Women and men, led by God, move together. In fact, the word together is mentioned in the first chapter. They waited together on power for power on high from God the Holy Spirit. They were together as they waited. Acts chapter 2, there's two verses, three times it mentions they were together. They were together they continued together, they broke bread, and they ate together. And it's when God's people come together, when we pursue unity and love and togetherness, that he blesses and he begins to work. I want you today, if you have an open Bible or have a Bible accessible, turn to Acts chapter 6. I'm going to stall for just a moment, and we will put Acts chapter 6 up on the big screen, and we'll read the first few verses there. Acts chapter 6. And we'll see, we'll read, and then we'll do work there this morning and see what we can learn. Anybody got a page number? If you've got a black ESV, complimentary study Bible, just shout that out if you can. Memorial Day weekend, you can talk in church. Anybody there? What are we hearing? 914, page 914. That'll take away the intimidation factor for some of you. Because we judge slow Bible turners. <laughs> Have you noticed that? It's painful. It hurts. Acts 6, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. 
And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Acts chapter 1, verse, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And keep your Bibles open, because we'll, we'll consider a couple of other passages uh, later in this. What we have here in Acts 6, we have two groups. We have the Hellenists, we have the Hebrews. Consider first the Hebrews, stated simply, the Hebrews were of Jewish background and they spoke Aramaic. The Hellenists were of Greek background and they spoke Greek. So you have here a language barrier. And let me just say, appealing to the church that we long to be, the, the church that we're praying for, uh, this was a multicultural church. And with that, you see the strength of a multicultural church, but you see the struggle of a multicultural church. There was a language barrier. I've told you a few weeks ago, Daniel Wagner and Jeff Hightower, two of our other pastors, went to Vancouver and got to see the church in action in this amazing city where the world is coming. And to see the people and the groups and the languages and the work that God is doing. Don't you hope and pray, even in little old Jackson, Mississippi, even in Fondren, that we can grow with greater diversity. There's a strength there, but there is a struggle there. So they had the language barrier, but in addition to the language barrier that we can get past, there was the, the love question. And we see there, these two groups, we see that... Uh, the struggle developed and the Hellenists were beginning to think that they were looking and seeing the obvious because hear me now when an organization grows needs get unmet think of your family because God describes over and over again in the New Testament he likens the church to a family but think of your family when you just have a couple of kids you can throw them in the minivan and head to Chick-fil-a and it's pretty it's not that difficult but if you have a whole bunch of kids you go from participatory environment to an autocratic environment right you've got older kids disciplining and talking to younger kids you've got layers and layers there the, the family has grown it's not necessarily a bad thing but you have to adjust and that's what we see here in acts remember the church multiplied it increased it spread god was causing growth they were bearing fruit and that's a good thing god celebrates that i hope we do i hope that we don't run ourselves ragged with organizational plans and we forget spiritual preparedness but whatever growth qualitatively quantitatively god wants to give us in our future we need to be ready but when you grow when your family grows or an organization grows when a church grows there are problems and the problem we see here is unmet needs and the hellenists were looking and saying well the the hebrew widows are being taken care of racism cultural bias and we know in our day we know in our own hearts that that is injurious, that's harmful, that can be so divisive and so such an affront to the heart of God. So here we see an attack. We see an en the enemy's attack from within. Now, the book of Acts, we're, we're taught that the enemy attacks the church from outside and from in. There's outward attack, like we see over and over again, already in the first few chapters, we see a persecuting government. You can go back to Acts chapter 4, and you see that the, the religious establishment did not like what was happening. They couldn't deny some of the miracles and some of the work and some of the fruit, but their position was threatened. 
and they beat them and forbid them to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. Stop your preaching. But the disciples in Acts chapter 4 said, we ought to obey God rather than man. There was attacks from without with the persecuting government. In Acts chapter 4, there was an inward attack when there was just the, the hypocrisy of two leaders who sought to embezzle. If you were here last week or had a chance to listen online, we just preached that sermon from Acts chapter 5 where a couple of people died in church. That's never good for church growth. But we didn't skirt around that. We said, I tried to share with you that I don't know all the answers there, but it seems to me to indicate that God hates deception. That he hates deception in the church. That he hates deception, deception in the church, and deception among leaders. He hates deception, deception in the church, deception among church leaders at crucial times. And he dealt with it severely, and there was fear that spread throughout. There was a, a lofty and high view of God there. Because the church was, there was honesty and there was generosity, and God doesn't want that messed up. When we're together, when we're sharing lives and meeting needs, God wants to preserve that. And that ought to be in our heart as well. So we see attacks from without and attacks from within. And here in Acts chapter 6, we see this attack, this, this resentment and this division that has a chance to really brew. Now question, especially if you're here today, not at the beach, and you're a leader at Fondren Church. What's more dangerous to the church? The church where Jesus with Peter in Matthew 16 said, I'm going to build my church on this rock and the gates of hell will not prevail. He didn't say that hell wouldn't attack the church. He just said it wouldn't prevail. But of those attacks, the attacks from outside, persecution and such, or attacks from inside, resentment and divisiveness, which do you think is more serious? Which do you think is more harmful? Acts shows us in Acts 29 today. We're living in the Acts 29 era and you can study this on your own and read around the world where the church is being persecuted even severely it's growing increasing spreading and multiplying i submit to you this morning that resentment and divisiveness is more is a more serious threat to our church when and here's two problems that we see in acts chapter six the first is they assign motive the hellenists their needs weren't being met they were right but just because you were right doesn't mean you need to go on a full-out attack. And they were right in noticing their widows were not being served and protected as the Hebrews were. Remember, a bit of a different culture. We still are called to care for the widows, to those who've experienced loss, but women didn't have as many rights. It was harder for them as women got older and didn't have a, a husband there to protect them or no family nearby. They faced all kind of untold hardships. And God says, from old to new, care for the poor, the orphans, and the widows. And these widows, their needs were not being met, and there was a gripe. But what did they do? They assigned motive. We often get in trouble when we assign motive. Maybe you're right. Maybe you see an unmet need. Maybe you see something that you can file a complaint about. But when you assign motive, when you assume the worst in somebody, resentment can build and the enemy can win as we are divided amongst ourselves. What did Jesus teach in Luke? A house divided against itself will not stand. Two mistakes they made, two problems we see in this passage with the unmet needs. They assigned motive. And secondly, they didn't go straight to the apostles. It says in Acts 6 that a complaint arose. Now that language 
that Greek language indicates. It implies that they were talking among themselves. They didn't go directly to the apostles. The complaint arose. It, it was elevating itself and it was being spread. And there's a danger there when we start complaining. In fact, God hates it. In Proverbs 6, he lists six things, no seven things that he hates, and three of them have to do with the tongue, and one of them has to do with sowing discord. You might not even be telling a lie. You could have the truth. You could have a legitimate complaint, but you're, the way you're doing it is sowing discord, and God cares. He cares about our love. He cares about our togetherness. He's not going to bless a bickering church. His heartbeat is for unity. So the mistake that they make is they assign motive and they don't go directly to the apostles. I want to extract a few important things from this text today. And the first is this. The first is the burden of leadership. The burden of leadership. As things grow, it can be so easy for it to take its toll. A couple of years ago, I was watching a Super Bowl beyond the commercials and the people in the room. I was intent on a Super Bowl and I was watching a team line up trailing by four. They were on the one yard line with 26 seconds left and had the NFL's best running back in their backfield. The commentators were saying with great superlative, they were talking about Coach Pete Carroll and they were saying he won a couple of national championships in college and now he's on the verge of winning his second Super Bowl. And they were using adjectives and superlatives, calling him among the greatest coaches of all time. And Pete Carroll, has, he calls a play and he has Russell Wilson roll out. And from the one yard line with 26 six seconds left, he throws a pass. And the pass, many of you know, was intercepted by the Patriots. And what I remember is how it went from lauded praise to lamented criticism how a coach went from one of the greatest coaches of all time to the worst call in Super Bowl history and I watched Pete Carroll I watched him in post game have to endure the indignity of the press and to read and hear all that he heard for days and weeks that followed and I thought of the burden how easy it is for us to look and think we know better to, to look at a leader's decisions. But I, I know this, that a leader has to make decisions. A leader carries a burden and a leader has to face criticism. Consider presidents. You can Google this, it's fun to do later, but Google presidents before they enter office and when they leave office and look at how it's taken its toll. Not being mean here, but it's just not pretty. Four years, eight years, of leadership there's a weight there's a burden there's a there's criticism how many of you criticism is not your thing like it's hard to be criticized it's hard to be questions it, it's hard to be second yes how many of you you adopt a defensive mode when you're being criticized if you're gonna lead you've got to learn to deal with criticism. I was going through a particularly hard season of my life not too long ago, and a pastor friend texted me and said, Hey, Robert, you got to read a book. It's called Leadership Pain. And I laughed because I'd already just finished a book called The Painful Side of Leadership. I thought, Dude, what is God saying to me? 
and I, I literally thought first that he had the title wrong, and I was looking forward to correcting him. But it's a different book, a book that I got. I read the introduction. I said, oh, this is, this is God's will for my life to read this book. But so, I mean, one of those just times, one of those weeks where it, I read it in four or five days and marked it up and just inwardly digested it. And it, it was just a healing bomb to me. And we see in Acts chapter 6 the burden that leaders carry. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, I've been beaten with rods. I've been pounded with stones. I've been shipwrecked. I've been cast at sea for days and nights. I've been hungry and thirsty, cold and naked. I've been in danger with fellow Jews. I've been in danger with the Gentiles, danger with bandits. I've been in danger in the country, danger in the city, danger on the sea. Sounds a little like Dr. Seuss, doesn't it? And Paul says, but the greatest burden was the care, the daily care of the churches. In Acts, we see a great weight that these people carry. And God orchestrated it in such a way that their burden would be lifted. Hebrews chapter 13, I'm not putting it up today, but Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17 says to obey your leaders. If you're de-churched, if you've been burned by the church, that's just a hard verse, okay? But obey your spiritual leaders, your authority, and live in such a way that you, you'll make their job a joy. Do you know that? I've taught this before here. Your job, if this is your church, is to make my job a joy. Isn't that cool? I mean, that's according to Scripture. Love it or loathe it. But your job is to make my job a joy. I want to look at some of you right now and just stare you down, right? But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to be gracious, right? I wouldn't want to use the pulpit as a bully pulpit. But your job, obey your leaders. Anybody have trouble with that? If you've been burned by a church, you've seen a lack of integrity, you've seen someone wield power as Jesus did not intend, that's a hard verse, obey your leaders. And let me just say this, just to rest a little bit, when do I ever tell you what to do? Can you think of a time, I know I preach, and sometimes it may seem like I'm preaching at you, but when do I ever specifically tell you to do something? Not often. Sometimes we encourage you where to park or what service to attend when we have our two services. We encourage you sometimes, I don't say it enough, but we encourage some of you on busy Sundays to sit down front because guests need the back row. Sometimes we tell you what to do. You're not, you don't listen anyway, right? So don't be threatened by Hebrews 13. But it says to live in such a way, to, to pray for your leaders, to promote togetherness. And when there's criticism, to do it in a, in a godly way. Don't assign motive and go directly to. If you're taking notes today, learn this from Acts chapter 6. Write the word benefit of the doubt. And then write, speak directly to. What if we were a church where all of us always did that? We gave others the benefit of the doubt. Now, can I say that's hard for me? Like, I'm not necessarily practicing what I preach. That's why, that's why God gave me Susan. That's why I go to other people for counsel. God is so good to teach us, give others the benefit, and speak directly toward what unity and what love will promote uh, if we do that. Beyond just the burden of leaders, the, the second thing I want to mention to you is the organizational heart of God. 
How many of you, let's do a show of hands on this one. I've burned some of you before, but how many of you, you love organization? Like you're a pretty organized person. The people right now, if you raise your hand, the person next to you is going to look at you, right? Are you, you're pretty, like you love systems and structure and details. Can I just say thank God for you? I don't, I'm not you. I don't want to be with you a lot, right? But I don't want to go on vacation with you and you don't want to go on vacation with me. Can we just say that? But like God has made you that way. And I just want to say he has not made me that way. If, if you're an organized person, you love Luke chapter 14 where Jesus teaches. He says, hey, if you go to war or you build a tower, don't you first sit down and count the cost. That's an that's a, that's a organizational verse. But if you're built the way I am, you love John chapter 3 when Jesus says the work of the Spirit is like the wind. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. Like I lean into that. I love that. But here we see the organizational heart of God. It's why I love to lead in a church where there's a plurality of leaders, where there's men and women guiding our church and working together, and there's checks and there's balances, and that's important. But we see the organizational heart of God. If uh, Those of you who know your Bible well, you'll know that Acts chapter 6, it's reminiscent of Exodus chapter 18 where Moses and his father-in-law Jethro have a significant conversation uh, let's look at that briefly on the screen. I put up a few of those verses. Exodus 18, we're introduced to Jethro. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. How about that? Some of y'all are like, father-in-law, delighted? That doesn't seem right. But here's a father-in-law who's really delighted. Not only is the father-in-law delighted, he says some cool things about his son-in-law. Just wanted you to know that's in the Bible. Next few verses, verse 17, 14. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, now he becomes a father-in-law, what is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Now let's read how this plays out. Moses' father-in-law replied, this, Moses had responded to him. We'll pick it up a few verses later. Moses spoke and then Jethro to him. What you are doing, Moses, is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Know any lone rangers? I gathered with a group of pastors two weeks ago. There were six of us. The majority lonely. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice Father-in-laws have been doing that ever since. May God be with you as I give you this advice. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions. He's saying, Moses, keep being who you are, but show them the way they are to live and how they're to behave, but select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Don't you see organizational structure here? Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you, the simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses, Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable people, capable men from all of Israel, made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. 
They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. And you see here some good structure. You see that a leader listens to advice. Don't be a part of the church where leaders don't listen. If you're going to follow someone, you'll want to get a sense that they're following Christ. You'll want to get a sense that they're a student of the word and their lives are in submission to that. You'll need them to be transparent and to talk at your level because they are at your level. And you will need to see that they do not have all the answers. And listen to them. A couple weeks ago after the 9.30 service, I really feel like I dropped a ball. There was a, a moment and I just dropped it spiritually of a work that God wanted to do. I can't. I don't have the time to tell you at all. It'll kind of freak you out anyway. But after the service, a couple who's very discerning, they have the spiritual gift. They came up to me and they filled in the blank and they, they rebuked me. And you know, I didn't adopt the non-defensive posture, which has been my custom. I received it. And they said lovingly, they said to me, that's probably the key, lovingly they built me up. This is their church. They own this church. They love this church. They're invested in it. And they said, we, just, we don't want to come to church when there's a moment and we miss it. And we believe the gospel is so good that everybody ought to leave different from when they came. And that changed me. It changed me for the next service. And if you were here, you saw God move in some ways. And maybe some of you have heard a couple of the stories that follow. But I believe that that's true. And I want to listen to what God may say through good people. Here, Moses does that. And we see, for you organized people, we see an organizational structure here, and it works. And who is served well? The people get served, the leader can sustain, and he can carry the load, and others get in the game. We see here the burden of leadership in Acts 6. We see God's heart for organization. And lastly, we see the power of serving. Luke chapter 9. The disciples argued among themselves, which is the greatest? Jesus, knowing their hearts, called a child and had the child stand beside him and said, it is the least among you who is the greatest. Luke chapter 22, a dispute arose among them as to who would be considered the greatest. And Jesus said, the Gentiles exercise authority, the Gentiles rule over people, it is not to be so with you, your life should be different and among you the youngest will be the greatest the one who rules will be the one who serves in mark chapter 9 it says jesus sitting down called the disciples to him and said if you want to be first you will have to be the very last and be the servant of all i love to read about servanthood I love to study about servanthood. I, from time to time, teach about servanthood. I admire serving. I champion serving. I am pro-serving, except when it comes to actually serving. Survey after survey after survey show us that of the world's most admired people in the modern era, Mother Teresa always makes the top five, always. She died in 1997. 
the Mother Teresa in the top five, everybody's list. Apparently, we admire Mother Teresa. We just don't want to be Mother Teresa. Jesus knew that. He knew their hearts. And he knew the resistance. And he knew that you and I have an ego. Somebody once described the ego, it stands for edging God out. And it's your wounded ego and mind that allow us to withdraw into silent relationships. Allow us to promote divisiveness and to sow discord. To build up resentment and make the church what Jesus never intended it to be. To serve. To serve. And we see here in Acts chapter 6, they put the organizational structure in place. Just like Moses did in Exodus 18, so that he could have a life, other leaders could be empowered, and all people could, could be served. We see the same thing happening in Acts. And a group was raised up called deacons. At Fondren Church, we're governed by our elders and served by our deacons. It's why I want to bust on my friend Austin Moore today. About three weeks ago, a, how, a tree fell on our house. Big tree from out back. It just fell over. We, we weren't home. Our graduating high school senior was at home for about an hour. He texted us. We were at our ninth graders graduation ceremony awards day and we get a text. You're never ready for a text from one of your kids that says, hey, a tree just fell on our house. So I wanted to let some friends know so y'all could pray for me, maybe serve me. And we let shelter insurance know. And Austin Moore is one of our elders. He's our youngest elder and he used to be a deacon. So we have a saying here that Elders lead our church and govern our church and the deacons serve our church. And so Austin replied back. His reply was, not I'm praying for you or I want to come help. Austin said to all of us, man, I'm so glad I'm an elder and not a deacon. <laughs> Isn't that terrible of Austin Moore? But for real, Austin knows what I want to share with you now. This verse seems to indicate that the elders had graduated from serving. And that's not the case. It wasn't a graduation from service. It was an assignment of their most effective servant. In fact, if you continue to read, you'll know that nowhere in the text does it particularly prescribe or say that they stopped serving. In fact, I think they continued to serve um, to make sure that there was oversight there. But their focus was on the word and it was on the prayer. And that's the heartbeat of a church. But those elders, just like those deacons, those apostles, just like we hope to today in our church, we're all servants. We all follow a foot washer who in John 13, when he washed the disciples' feet, he said, you do this as well. You get down from a lofty place into a lowly place and you serve others. You guys have your keychain today? Take, take out a keychain if you would and just hold it up and jingle it a little bit. You guys got key? How many of you have a lot of keys? I mean, you're working with a whole bunch. You're, it's a padded pocket. You got a lot, right? We are simple people. I've just got, I've got four. One doesn't work. How many keys you got? How many you got a bunch? Luke's got, was that one? One key? Poor, poor soul. Just one key. That means you don't have much responsibility. That means you're still bumming off your parents. But I bet your dad, Luke, I bet your dad Mark has a bunch of keys and your mom Katie. I bet there's a whole lot of keys. Every key fits a lock. Car, home, storage unit, office, tractor, ATV, whatever it is, right? Some of you have multiple keys to office and home. And every key fits a lock. 
The keys on your keychain, take a glance, they probably, a lot of them probably look alike. Same, similar shape, same length. But somebody, a master craftsman, cut those keys. And they cut those keys to open different doors. And Ephesians 4 tells us, Paul, who we'll learn about in a couple of weeks, he's introduced in Acts chapter 9, but he teaches the church at Ephesus that they're apostles and prophets, shepherds, elders, evangelists, and teachers. And of these roles, these people do their work, but they do their work, you've heard this, some of you, they do their work to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So we like a lot of American churches at Fonder, we have a few staff. I love our staff. Love them all. But we're encouraging them to more and more, not just to do the work of the ministry, but to equip you to do the work of the ministry. We'll never be able to afford to hire a lot of staff, nor should we. We want our church to be lean and clean and mean, and we want to empower you, just as the New Testament says, to be equipped to do the work. God has made you in such a way like a key on your keychain, like those keys. You can open doors that I can't. God has a door for you to walk into in a role of service that's different from mine, but it's there. It's every much as real. And we see in Acts chapter 6, the keys to the kingdom, as they begin to roll out that people serve. There's organizational structure. The burden of leaders is taken away or it's it's improved. It's made lighter. The load is made lighter. And we see the answer is in serving. When you're serving others, you don't have a lot of time to complain and sow discord and be divisive. When you and I are about meeting needs of people, when you are gleaning and gaining the joy of realizing how God has made you, and then you're employing that and seeing that be a part of your life, you don't care about some of the petty things that makes people cringe and leave churches. And it is my prayer that we could be that church. I want you to bow your